In just a moment, we're going to be taking a closer look at that passage that was read to us from uh, Ephesians chapter 1, but I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have chosen us as your people. You've called us to this place that we might know you. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come before your word, you would indeed open our hearts and minds to understand the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So there are certain words that when you say them, they just stop conversation entirely. Certain words that when they come out of your mouth, like the, the trajectory of the conversation suddenly gets derailed and, and moved in a totally different direction, that all other actions stop because this word was just spoken. Uh, and, and it's different for every single person. Uh, maybe the, the thing that's spoken is the, uh, the name of your favorite sports team during March Madness. And now it doesn't matter what other people were talking about. We're going to talk about that sports team and how well they're doing and where they're at in your bracket. Or maybe it's uh, you know, a certain political candidate that you love or a political candidate that you hate or the political party that you enjoy or the one that you think should never rule ever anywhere for any reason whatsoever. Whatever it is. We have words, right, that when, they, when we say them, it brings up a whole host of, of feelings and emotions, everything from excitement to anxiety. And when we hear them, it's almost just like we're just like triggered. Now we gotta, now we got to talk about that word and, and kind of fill it all in. Now, in my house, we, we have uh, those words. One of the biggest words, though, the word that, that if we say it in our house, it just stops everything dead in its tracks, is the word pancakes, uh, does it matter what my wife and I are talking about? If the word pancakes are, is mentioned, suddenly all the children are in the kitchen. Okay, we could be sitting there going through and being like, all right, so what are we going to be doing? Uh, what are we giving up for Lent? We're going to give up pancakes. All kids are, we're having pancakes for all of Lent? No, that's not what we said. It's just like, but you said pancakes. Yes, I did, which means we're going to have them like right now, right? No, that's not what we're doing. But you see, the moment we say pancakes, that's it. Their chores stop. Whatever game they were playing ends. Wherever they were in the house, suddenly they're magically in the kitchen. Why? Because the word was spoken. Pancakes. And I would argue that there are words like that uh, that also have kind of the same effect when it comes to discussions about religion and, and faith and spirituality. And one of those words, and the word that we're going to be tackling uh, this morning, is the word predestination. Okay, big theological word, uh, sometimes uh, thrown around in the church, but I would say that predestination is the pancakes of theological debate. Okay, that when you say predestination, it brings up a whole host of different questions and concerns and fears and anxieties and so on and so forth. Like, for example, you know, we get to the passage that we read this morning, where it says in Ephesians 1, verse 5, He predestined us. Now, never mind the fact that those are three words in the longest run-on sentence in the entire New Testament. Okay, never mind that those are three words in an entire chapter that unpacks this big idea. We hear that word predestined and suddenly we start to fill it in with all of our fears and questions and doubts and anxieties, right? Well, what about bad people who do bad things? What about good people who do good things? What about God's sovereignty? How is this fair? If God chooses some people to go to heaven, doesn't that mean that he chooses other people to go to hell? And so on and so forth. We just hear this one word and it's like pancakes, okay? Our minds go all over the place. 
And quite honestly, I think it's because there is a lot of confusion around the word predestination. I don't know what church tradition you were raised in or what church background you came from. There are some churches that say when it comes to predestination, God chooses uh, some to be saved. And logically, by extension, he therefore chooses others not to be saved. Then there are other church traditions that say, no, 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 no. When it comes to predestination, that's, that's not biblical. We all have free will. We have to choose. We have to choose God. We have to choose to believe in him. We have to, we have to choose to follow Jesus and so on and so forth. And we have this one word and it sets us off in all these different directions. But here's what I want to help you understand. Is that anytime we come across a loaded term or a loaded word when it comes to the Bible, we need to take a step back and ask ourselves some pretty fundamental questions. We have to ask ourselves the questions, first and foremost, who is this person talking to? Because who they're talking to in that context helps us understand quite a bit about how they intend us to understand this word or this idea. The second thing we have to understand is we have to understand what they're not saying about this idea, because there's plenty of things that they're not saying, and oftentimes we ask questions about stuff that, honestly, the author of Scripture doesn't even want to talk about. That's not the point that he's trying to make in the slightest. And the last, and certainly not least, we have to understand what he is saying. If we're going to get this right, we need to first and foremost understand who he's talking to, what he's not saying, and then what he is saying. Because otherwise, what ends up happening is we fill these words and these ideas with our own assumptions, our own anxieties, our own fears, our own past understandings of these terms, and we don't really approach them on a biblical basis to really see, well, what is the author of Scripture actually telling us? And by the way, this is, this is nothing new. Jesus had to wrestle with this too. A really good example comes at the end of John's gospel. It's actually after the resurrection. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And uh, he's now, the resurrected Jesus has been meeting with his disciples. But, but he's specifically, he's talking with Peter. And the reason he's talking with Peter is because Peter had just denied him three times. Peter had betrayed him. And there's this beautiful conversation in which Jesus is walking with Peter and he's reinstating Peter. He asks him the question, you know, three times, do you love me? And three times Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And three times Jesus said, then I want you to feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. And then comes to the end of the conversation and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, I want you to follow me. The very same words that Jesus spoke when he first called Peter to be his disciple, he speaks again here to say, Peter, you have a calling and he, and he tells them some pretty hard stuff. He says, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. And the author of John's gospel says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And upon hearing this, Peter does what we all do when we hear something, a phrase or a word, and then suddenly it raises all kinds of fears and anxieties, he deflects. Because then what he does is it says, Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. And Peter said, well, Lord, what about him? And Jesus' response to Peter is so instructive. He says, hey, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And then, and then again, 
the writer of John's gospel does something hilarious, almost like knowing that we were going to take even that phrase and try to fill it with all of our own ideas. He then goes on and writes this. He says, because of this, a rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You see, what's going on here is basically what Jesus is telling Peter. is saying, look, Peter, I want you to follow me. And following me is going to be hard. It's going to require everything of you. It's going to mean that eventually you're going to lay down your life for me. And Peter's like, oh, yeah, well, what about the other disciples? What about John? He's like, don't worry about John. I mean, heck, if I want John to stay alive until I come back again, what is that to you? That's my call. That's not your call. You have a call, and your call is to follow me. And I think what Jesus did with Peter is exactly what we have to do when we tackle this subject of predestination. To say, well, hang on a second, what is, who's Jesus actually talking to? What is he not saying and what is he actually saying? Because what we see is that what Jesus wants us to understand is he wants us to understand the calling that he has for us and to leave the rest in his hands. I'll use kind of another example from home here for a second. We have a, we have a ritual, a, ru- a routine at home. It's an earth-shattering uh, ritual routine. Uh, basically, when we're getting ready for bed, we brush our teeth. Yeah? And we expect our kids to brush our teeth. Uh, and they, 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 they need to go to the bathroom, brush their teeth, and then get their pajamas on and go to bed. That's, that's the rule. But somewhere along the line, my kids inserted their own like line into this ritual. And the line goes a little something like this. Without fail, every single night, teeth brushing comes around, and it comes out like this. But dad, it's always said in that like tone of voice, but dad, so-and-so hasn't brushed her teeth. But dad, so-and-so hasn't brushed his teeth. And it's almost my kid's way of saying, you know, like, well, I'm not going to brush my teeth because they're not brushing their teeth. Or why do I have to brush my teeth if, if they're not brushing their teeth? And so on and so forth. And, and when this first started happening, I was just like, oh, gosh, you know, I just want to pull my hair out. Until I learned a phrase from Jesus. No, I'm kidding. I learned a phrase that I think is very similar to what Jesus said to Peter. And I basically said, hey, you're not their dad. All right? You're not your brother's dad. You're not your sister's dad, okay? I'm their dad. And I will worry about them, and I'll worry about their teeth. But as for you, go brush your teeth. And I think the same needs to be said here about predestination, okay? Because one of the things that we find in Ephesians chapter, three, uh, chapter 1, is that Paul wants us to understand what God's will is for us. And he doesn't want us to lose the forest for the trees. You see, his audience in Ephesians is who? It's the church. It's fellow Christians. It's you. It's those who already believe in Jesus. That's the audience. So we need to understand that anything that he says is for them and for their good. He's not talking to other people. And he's not even talking about other people. But the second thing that we have to understand is what he's not saying. Nowhere does he say anything about the fate of those who don't yet believe in Jesus. In fact, if you look at all of Ephesians chapter 1, he's constantly talking to the church, to those who already have faith. And the only time he even addresses the topic of those who don't yet believe in Jesus is in chapter 2. And this is what he says. It says, As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. But then catch this, verse 3. 
all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So the only time he talks about those who didn't believe is to remind Christians, hey, you were once those people. But here's what he doesn't say. Nowhere in his discussion of predestination does he say God chooses some people and damns others. He doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible doesn't say that. And so if you come from a Christian tradition where it basically says, well, predestination is that God chooses some people to believe and everybody else he consigns to damnation and hell and stuff like that, that's not in the Bible. And furthermore, there are other places in the Bible that make abundantly clear that God loves everybody. Probably the most popular one being, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, if it was true that God chooses some people and damns others, the way that that would have read is, God loves the people that he's chosen so much that he sent his one and only son, so that just those people that he already picked will be saved and everybody else is in trouble. But that's not what the Bible says. He doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say that. Scripture doesn't say that. So what is Paul saying? When we talk about this word predestination, well, I think he's saying two things to the Ephesians that we need to understand. The first thing that he wants them to understand is he wants them to understand the overabundance of God's grace toward them. He wants them to remember who they are. He already said, and we already looked at that passage in Ephesians 2, where he says, you know, you once were among the disobedient. You were at once were those people who were running away from God, but not anymore. So who are they? Well, that's what Ephesians 1 is really all about. Listen to what he has to say. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Jesus. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring to unity all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. He says, who are you? He says, if you're somebody who believes in Jesus, you are a person who is deeply loved by God. That if you're someone who has trust in Jesus, it's only because he was pursuing you first. Remember the foundational verse of this entire series is where Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, tells his disciples what? He says, remember, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Which means that before we were ever seeking God, God was already pursuing us. Before we were ever looking for God, God was already chasing after us. Before we even had an idea that maybe we would like to follow God, God in his love was wooing us back to himself and we were chosen in him. Before you were born, God knew you fully and has now called you to be his own. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that's who you are. 
You're people who are loved by God, not because of what you've done, not because of how good you are, not because of how many times you've attended church. You are loved by God. And furthermore, you are loved in spite of your failings. That even those times when you ran from God, turned your back on God, didn't really care that much about God, didn't follow his word or his will for your life, doesn't matter. He loves you and has chosen you and called you to be his own. His love is that unconditional. You don't have to earn it because you had it before you even existed. That's what Paul is saying here. He says you are called according to his purposes, his ways. And we're sitting there, well, what about all the other people who don't believe? I was like, I'm not talking about them here. God is their father. He loves them too. And he has plans for them as well. But you, who are called according to his purposes, you need to know the purpose for which you are called. Because that's the second thing that he wants us to understand. First is he wants us to understand the overwhelming grace that we have in God. That we are adopted, redeemed, forgiven, We've received spiritual blessings from him. We have a promised inheritance and a hope for the future. And we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have God's presence in our lives always, never to be taken from us. And furthermore, we have that in order to proclaim his glory. Three times in this passage, he uses this phrase. It's to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace. What does he mean by that? He says that when you, imperfect, broken people though you are, are loved and welcomed into the family of God, that when you live according to that calling, as people who are blessed and sent by the God who loves you unconditionally, when that happens, it's to his glory. Why? Because it shows the world just how loving and merciful and gracious he truly is. That he doesn't count our sins against us, but rather that he's given us redemption through his blood. That though we've done wrong, he gives us forgiveness. That though we were running from him, he entered into this world and became a human being. That he walked with us, lived with us, died for us, and rose again. And by his power, we are now claimed as his people. That's what his glory is all about. That's what he desires to reveal to the world, is to show a world that he's not a God who's sitting there up in heaven, checking off all the ways in which we've screwed up, waiting for us to clean up our act before he lets us into his kingdom. No, he is a God who loves us even before the foundation of the world. And the way that we see that love, and the way that we know that love is first by looking to Jesus, and then seeing the love that Jesus has for his people. That's you and me. The people who've fallen short are called children. The people who've messed up are adopted. The people who've run their own way have now been claimed by God. And he is their father. And his love will never, ever be taken from them. That's the whole reason Paul talks about predestination. He's like, I want you to know that if you believe in Jesus, it's only because he came and rescued you first. And then his love is from everlasting to everlasting. I love, I love this quote from Marcus Barth talking about this. He says, Awareness of election or awareness of predestination is neither a church steeple from which to view the human landscape nor a pillow to sleep on. 
but it is a stronghold in times of trials and temptations. You see, oftentimes the way we get predestination wrong, the way we treat it like that phrase pancakes, is when we make it about how we're chosen and special and everybody else isn't. It leads to pride and complacency. Pride in the sense of, I know I'm chosen, yeah, God loves me. But then when it comes to other people who seem to be turning their backs on God, well, maybe they weren't picked. Maybe God just has to do something in their life. I mean, maybe he chose them that way. And if, and if he didn't, he's going to have to do something in order to turn their lives around. We become complacent. That's not the reason Paul talks about predestination here at all. He says, first and foremost, it's for you. It's for you to remember that you are chosen by God. And the reason why is because you're not all that perfect. You're not all that great. And yet God loves you anyways, in spite of your imperfections and failings. But it also, it doesn't allow us to just sleep, fall asleep on the job. He says, you now have a calling and a purpose, and that's to tell other people of the love that God has for them. And so we don't fall asleep on the job. We reject that notion that he picks some and rejects others because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he calls us apart from what we've done, claims us as his own, and sends us into the world to do what? He says, go make disciples of all nations. He says, for God so loved the whole world. He tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ, making as though God is making his appeal through us be reconciled to God. That's our calling. That's our purpose. That's who we are. And as we live as people who recognize our need for God, and as that love and that grace overflows, it tells the world, it paints the world, for the world a very different picture of what faith and life is all about recently heard another pastor talking about this very idea, this, this idea that Christians on the one hand can be horribly imperfect people and yet can proclaim the praises of God's glorious grace and how those two actually come together in Jesus. And this is what he had to say. The doctrine of predestination does nothing more than remove Christian pride and arrogance and replace it instead with peace and purpose. Because it reminds us that none of us deserves God's love, and yet he gives it freely. That none of us chose him, and yet he chose us and called us precious and his own. And it reminds us that as that grace goes deep and overflows, it flows out into a world that desperately needs to hear a different story about a God who doesn't count our sins and transgressions against us, but rather has given us the gifts of redemption, of forgiveness, of salvation, and of new life. You know, we do something here every so often in our church, something that according to the world's logic and standards doesn't make any sense. We baptize children. Why? Because Scripture tells us to. Because one of the things that the Bible tells us is that when we are baptized, we are forgiven. We have received the gift of new life and the promise of the Holy Spirit. It tells us everything that Paul just said in Ephesians chapter 1. And that all happens before these kids can ever utter a statement of faith. Before they can ever speak a word of, of response, they are claimed as God's children. Peter says, be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. It's the most tangible expression of what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 1. That before we ever chose Jesus, he chose us. Apart from what we do. Apart from what we failed to do. Because that's the kind of love the Father has for us. And it becomes a stronghold and a fortress in, trials of, in, mo- in seasons of trial and temptation. Moments when we're tempted to doubt God's love, to doubt his presence, to doubt that he's with us, either because of something that we're just struggling to get through or because of ways in which we've fallen short. Paul says, no, you need to know who you are. You are chosen by him. You are loved in him. And he will never, ever let you go. And through that, he reveals his glorious grace, this immeasurable love for the world. I think that's part of the reason why Paul prays. He says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That's what it means to be chosen. That's what it means to be called. That's what it means to be predestined for a purpose. And it's to that end that I'd like to pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that when we doubt or we struggle to know your will and your purpose for our lives, you make it known to us. You remind us of who we are, that though we've fallen short, we are chosen by you in Christ. And Lord, we pray that out of that knowledge, we would... (laughs) Be people who bring that good news to other people, that they would know that they are deeply loved by you. Lord, each day, help us to see just the immeasurable depth and height and breadth of your love. And may that forgiveness flow out of us and into a world that so desperately needs the hope that only you can give. In the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.